Thanks, Chris. Well, keep your Bible open, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to refer to these uh, accounts throughout our few minutes together here. But maybe it will help to begin by remembering where we are in the book of Matthew as we're reading these accounts. Matthew chapter, we've been going through the book of Matthew together as a church family. And uh, uh, and last week we came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we noticed last week at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we noticed that, that those who heard Jesus' teaching were astonished, specifically because he taught as one who spoke with authority. They were astonished at the authority of Jesus' teaching. And as we move beyond the Gospel of Matthew and look at what comes in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew here, as we look at Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's a whole section in Matthew's gospel that zooms in on the issue of Jesus' authority demonstrated and displayed not only in his teaching, but also in his actions. This section of scripture includes ten miraculous deeds of Jesus, maybe echoing or maybe paralleling the ten miraculous Signs of Moses, which were given as signs that he was authorized by God to declare liberation for God's people in slavery in his own day. And in addition to ten of these miraculous deeds being gathered together as Matthew has recorded them in his gospel, in his account of the life and teaching and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus... These ten miraculous deeds are carefully gathered together in three groups of three. And if you're wondering how three groups of three multiplies out to ten, hang with me for about a month and you'll see in a few weeks. But there are three groups of three carefully carefully recorded together, each of those three groups of three separated by a teaching about discipleship. See, Matthew has obviously recorded these things, not just haphazardly. Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this. He's put these things together on purpose to show us something about Jesus. To show us something about Jesus Christ, who is the son of great King David. To show us something important about Jesus Christ, who came to save his people from their sins. As Matthew chapter 1 explained to us, it's here to show us something important about Jesus who will eventually give his life as a sacrifice for sin and rise in triumph over the powers of sin in death and then stand on a hillside and say to a group of his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples among all nations. Matthew has put together these specific accounts of the authority of Jesus in action so that we can see something important about Jesus. It's our privilege, it's our honor 
to pay attention to these portraits, these pictures of our Lord. And so I want to slow down with you and pay attention to these three accounts that Chris just read. We'll pay attention to each of these three portraits in turn and we'll consider, we'll watch for what it is that God intends for us to see about Jesus. Let's think first of all for a couple of minutes about this first portrait of Jesus' authority and action. This first portrait of Jesus cleansing a leper. Leprosy in the Bible is a wide category of skin diseases ranging from inconvenient rashes. Rashes can be quite inconvenient. But they range from inconvenient rashes to life-altering conditions. One famous Old Testament example of leprosy is the, the foreign man named Naaman who comes to find God's prophet in 2 Kings chapter 5, hoping desperately that there might be some kind of cure for the skin condition that is ruining his life. You hear that sometimes leprosy is far more than just an irritating rash. Ancient forms of leprosy feature prominently in the law of Moses. Uh, Maybe especially the regulations in Leviticus chapter 13, which teach that people with these skin diseases of leprosy need to remove themselves from their cities, need to remove themselves from regular contact with other people, presumably in order to avoid spreading this disease to others. And in fact, Leviticus 13 even gives directions for people with this skin condition diagnosed. If they are to see somebody getting close to them, they're supposed to call out, unclean! To warn others not to get too close. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us this specific account about Jesus healing this specific leper. And not only that, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put this account of Jesus healing this specific leper very close to the beginning of their explanation and portrayal of the ministry of Jesus, the authority of Jesus in action. Why? Because it is a story that highlights something essential. It highlights something essential to Jesus' mission. To why Jesus is here and what his authority aims at. Think about the account from the perspective of the leper for just a minute. If you are this person with leprosy, then you know that this disease has wrecked everything in your life. You used to be free from the physical pain of the leprosy. You used to be free to associate with friends and family and people in your neighborhood. You used to be free to join others for prayer and for worship. But if you're this person with leprosy, then you know that this disease has wrecked your life physically. Whereas you used to be free from the physical pain 
Now it's unbearable and untreatable. Whereas you used to be free to associate with friends and family and people in your neighborhood, now when somebody gets too close, you have to start calling out to them, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. As if you are so dangerous that nobody else should dare come near you. If you're this person with leprosy, then you know that whereas you used to be free to join others in the assembly for, for prayer and for worship, you know that now you are excluded from the worship of Israel. If you're this person with leprosy, then you understand that this disease has wrecked everything. But today, a crowd is gathering. And word on the street is that Jesus is coming to your city. You've heard that Jesus can change lives. You've heard that Jesus has authority to heal. You've heard that other people with serious physical conditions have found new health and restoration. From the healing ministry of Jesus. You've heard that you can heal. And I don't know what all of the motivations are. But I know this. You decide that it's time to take a bold step of faith. And so as the crowds gather. You begin to make your way closer and closer to Jesus. You weave through people who normally you would call out unclean, unclean, and they would walk away at a safe distance. You push your way through the crowd. You notice the fearful glances from everybody's eyes. You find your way to Jesus. And you fall down. You kneel before Him. It's almost like you're worshiping Him. To the eyes of others. In his presence, the only word that seems fitting when you want to address him is not just to say, Mr. Jesus, but to address him as Lord. And from your kneeling posture, you make your request, Lord. If you will, Lord, if you desire, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then the moment of tension. What will happen next? Perhaps you glance sideways and you see the shocked and fearful and angry and shaming glances of others that are all telling you, you don't belong here. But then your eyes move toward Jesus' face and what you see is something different. 
is not the fear. It's not the anger. It's not the shame. It's not a look through the eyes that is meant to communicate you don't belong around here. What you see in the face of Jesus is described in Mark chapter 1 as compassion. And with his eyes full of compassion, after months or years or maybe decades have gone by since that time when this disease took over your life and changed everything and ruined everything from physical pain to emotional and relational estrangement to being excluded from the worship in Israel. However many months or years or decades it's been since this disease came and wrecked everything, however long it's been that you've been excluded, now you hear the compassionate words of Jesus. I will. This is what I desire. This is what I intend in response to your request. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He says, I will be clean. And something changes. Matthew chapter 8 verse 3 says, Immediately, immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus says to you, surprisingly, see that you say nothing to anyone. Why? This is a perplexing mystery that will echo through Matthew's gospel and I'm going to leave it as a mystery for now. But Jesus says, don't go and tell everybody about this healing. But there is someone you need to go and talk to. The law of Moses calls you to go and present yourself to the priest in the temple so that he can, so that he can declare you No longer unclean, but clean. And so Jesus, who is teaching on the mountainside, do not think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus here dramatically demonstrates that he's come not just to throw the law of Moses out the window, but to do something even more powerful than the law of Moses was ever able to do. You see, the law of Moses was able to declare somebody unclean. But better news the gospel brings. Whereas the law of Moses was able to declare somebody unclean, the word of Jesus, the voice of Jesus, the heart of Christ is able to declare you clean. And so with a word... And with an outstretched hand, think of how long it has been since this fellow who has to cry out, unclean, 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 so that everybody else has to keep their safe distance. How long has it been since a stranger reached out and grabbed his shoulder with affection? 
Jesus reaches out and with a touch and with a word, Jesus does more than the law of Moses was able to do. And this man stands up and goes to the temple to present himself to the priests. No longer unclean, but clean. It's a beautiful portrait of the authority of Jesus, which came not to crush and destroy, but to redeem, to heal, and to restore what was lost. You see, here in this first portrait of Jesus, Jesus brings the leper healing, cleansing. Praise God for that. I mean, let's not overlook the, uh, the obvious, astonishing fact. This man showed up unclean, plagued by leprosy for decades, and he walked away from his encounter with Jesus clean, no longer plagued by leprosy. Jesus brings this leper healing, but more than that, Jesus' authority brings the leper near. More than that, it brings the outsider in. It gives the outcast a place among Israel's worshipers in the temple. See, Jesus has the power to heal. And that authority also carries with it the power to bring near those who were once far. That's the first portrait of Jesus' authority. Let's consider a second portrait of the authority and power of Jesus as he heals a Roman kid. One author draws our attention to seven surprises in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. The first surprise that we encounter is the surprise that a centurion is approaching Jesus. The centurion is a Roman soldier. This is very offensive to Jewish people. You see, as a Roman, as a Roman officer living in a Jewish part of the world, he represents the oppressor. He represents the bad guy. Who knows what injustices he's enforced or ordered by his own commands over Jewish people who are gathered there around Jesus this day. The first surprise is that this centurion, this enemy, if you will, approaches Jesus. The second surprise is that this centurion who is under the lordship of Caesar refers to Jesus not once but twice as Lord. You see, apparently this man who understands that he's under authority, that he takes instructions from others and in the Roman Empire gives instructions to others, he recognizes, you know, game, recognizes game. This centurion recognizes the lordship of Jesus. He recognizes that in the presence of Jesus Christ, there's only one word that's fitting and it's Lord's. He doesn't simply refer to Jesus as a rabbi. 
Or as a teacher, he recognizes him as Lord. A third surprise is that the centurion makes an appeal on behalf of his young servants. The word that's used in Matthew's gospel refers not just generically to any old servant, but to a child age servant in particular. And there's something surprising in a world like the Roman Empire that is obsessed with power and efficiency, obsessed with what, obsessed with making more money, obsessed with exercising authority. There's something surprising here about this Roman centurion who cares about the welfare of his child servant. And something surprising about a Roman centurion coming to Jesus and presuming that Jesus will care about his child servant. The fourth surprise is that Jesus responds to the centurion's request by saying, I will come and heal him. This is shocking. Jesus A Jewish teacher is agreeing to enter the home of a Roman centurion. A fifth surprise is that this Gentile won't allow Jesus to come into his house. And Jesus listens to him. Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. I don't know if there's ethnic baggage on the Roman guy's part. I don't know if he's just trying to be polite. Whatever the reasoning is, what seems obvious is that the Spirit of God was preparing to use this as a greater demonstration, a further demonstration of the power and authority of Jesus. So when Jesus says, I'll come into your house, the centurion says, no, you don't need to come. And from there we come to a further surprise in verses 8 through 10, when the centurion says, all you need to do is say a word and my child will be healed. Say a word and this child servant in my household will be healed. There's something surprising about this Roman centurion's faith. Jesus has healed, in the case of the leper, with this combination of word and touch. But now the Roman centurion comes along and he says, Jesus, I recognize that you're a Lord. I recognize there's a unique kind of authority in your life, and here's how authority works. I believe in your authority in such a way that I believe that just as I speak words and others go and get it done whether I'm there or not, you have such an authority throughout this world that you can speak the words and the servant's child will be healed even from a great distance. And a seventh surprise follows in Jesus' provocative statement. 
He says in verse 11, look there with me if you would. I tell you, many, actually let's look at the end of verse 10. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. You know, the gospel according to the book of Romans and according to the mouth of Jesus is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's the way that the New Testament describes it. But here's Jesus saying, even as I come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven, first to the Jew and then to all the other non-Jewish nations and ethnicities and nationalities. Jesus, Jesus marvels at the faith of this centurion and he says, I have not seen faith like this in Israel. And then he continues on in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. You you see what's surprising here. Jesus is proclaiming a great reversal of expectations. There are some who count themselves religious insiders who will end up nowhere near heaven. And there are some who to the world's eyes are nowhere near where God set up His redeeming plan to begin. And yet Jesus says many It's not just like a few here and there will come from different nations. Jesus previews the mission that is to come. Jesus who will one day say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples among all nations. He previews the global scope of his mission. And he says this thing is going global. Many are going to come from the east and from the west. Many are going to come from other nationalities and ethnicities. And they will have not just a place on the outskirts of the kingdom of heaven. They'll have a seat at the table by Abraham. And by Isaac and by Jacob. This is a surprise that Jesus proclaims. It previews, in fact, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that one day there will be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Doug O'Donnell lists these seven surprises that are found here in Matthew chapter 8 in the story But there's almost a surprise that slips past our notice. In all of these surprises, in this shocking account, it almost just comes as little more than a shrug of our shoulders as we read through the pages of Scripture that Jesus finally, in verse 13, says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And listen, skeptics through the ages, skeptics 2,000 years ago, skeptics 1,000 years ago, skeptics 50 years ago, and skeptics today will say, well, how do you know the kid didn't just get better on his own? We'll have to leave the evidence 
in front of you for you to consider for yourself. But this man's testimony, the testimony of people throughout his house, the testimony that's recorded for us here, is that Jesus just spoke a word and this servant was healed. What do we see in this portrait of Jesus? We see that Jesus' authority brings healing to a Gentile household. Did I say authority? Jesus' authority brings healing to a Gentile household. He brings healing for a servant kid. For somebody that most in Jewish society would regard as somebody not very important at all. But Jesus' authority brings healing to a Gentile household. And more than that, Jesus' authority previews here His coming ability to bring countless millions from around the globe who once were far off and nowhere near the redeeming work of God. His redemptive authority brings countless millions from nations and tribes and peoples and languages to find a seat at the table right alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. See, Jesus has the power to heal and He has the power to bring to a seat at the table those who were once far. Here's the third portrait of Jesus that we see here in this passage. Maybe you're beginning to notice a little bit of a similarity or a little bit of a theme here. A third portrait of Jesus in this passage begins in verse 14, where we read about how Jesus restores a woman for service. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus entered Peter's house. And if you know much about the stories of the Gospels, you know that Peter is an important part of Jesus' ministry team. He's one of the inner circle in Jesus' crew of disciples. He's going to have plenty of mistakes in his life. But in the end, he's going to be commissioned to be a leader in the early church. He's going to go and preach the gospel in ways that will change the world. Here in verse 14, we read that Jesus comes to Peter's house. And maybe at first we think this is going to be the location where something really important happens between Jesus, who's really important, and Peter, who's really important. But what happens next? It's not just an important encounter between Jesus and his important preacher. What happens next is an important encounter between Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law. What we find here in verse 14 is an important encounter between Jesus and a woman. Jesus and a woman who is old enough to be in the mother-in-law phase of life. You have to have lived a certain number of years to get there to that phase of your life. Jesus enters Peter's home and his business isn't just, I've got some business to take care of with my really important preacher dude over here. 
He's got an important encounter with this mother-in-law aged woman. When he enters the home, she's lying sick with a fever. And what does Jesus do? It's interesting, in that encounter with the leper, Jesus touched and spoke a word, and healing came. In the encounter with the servant child in the Roman household, there was no touch, but only a word, and healing came. Here in this passage, there's not record of a word that Jesus speaks. There's only record of his touch. Why? I think for one thing, Matthew wants us to be clear that this isn't a paint-by-numbers, you know, kind of handbook for how to heal people. God isn't just going to, you know, give you a, 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 a book of magic tricks. If you just do this in this situation, or this in this situation, or this, then people get healed. Sometimes it's with a word and a touch. Sometimes it's with a word and no physical contact. Sometimes it's with the touch of his hand and no words spoken at all. There's a variety of means here, even just in these three portraits of Jesus' authority to heal. But here he touches her hand and what happens? The fever leaves. The shivering stops. That miserable feeling in her head when you know what it's like if you have a serious fever and you don't take ibuprofen. That miserable feeling when, I mean, I've felt at times when I'm shivering in my body and my brain is clouded. It's just like, if I were to die today, it wouldn't be that bad compared to this. And here she is lying there shaking and probably everybody else is frightened and everybody else wants to keep their distance. But here Jesus walks up and he touches her hand. And what is the effect? The shivering stops. That inner agony dies down. Immediately the fever leaves. Her health is restored. And from kind of the brink of death, remember fevers were often deadly in other parts of the world and in other eras of time without modern medicine. From the brink of death, he restores her life. And what happens next? Matthew wants us to see at the end of verse 15, she got up and she began serving Jesus. See, there's something that I think is really important in this picture of this picture that Matthew gives us of this woman being restored in order to spend her time serving Jesus. Sometimes the New Testament gets kind of a bad reputation as if the New Testament is anti-women. And if we're honest about it, there are some things that the New Testament does say that are very uncomfortable for many of us. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men in, his, in the context of giving instructions for how the church is supposed to function. So Paul says, in the way that the church works, I don't permit women to teach or to exercise authority. And so sometimes the New Testament gets this bad reputation as if the New Testament is bad for women, as if the New Testament is against women. But I think we need to recognize, if we're honest with 
what the New Testament itself says. The New Testament does say some things that will push back on some elements of the way that we view the relationship between men and women in the church or in the family. But we also need to be honest enough to recognize how pro-women, how empowering for women, how life-giving for women the New Testament truly is. Listen, in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, there was a list of prayers called the 18 benedictions. They're not biblical. They're just things that Jewish men in Jesus' day would often pray. And one of those 18 benedictions that Jewish men would pray on a regular basis in Jesus' day went something like this. Quote, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And listen, I, I'm, I realize I'm a dude. I realize this is not even going to affect me as deeply as it will affect many women here. But I can imagine what it would be like to be a girl growing up in that culture overhearing dad pray out loud, God, I thank you that I am not a woman. What message does that send day after day to girls being raised in that culture and in that environment? But now here comes Jesus and he enters the house of Peter, this man who will one day be a famous preacher. And what happens in that house? Is not sermon strategies for Peter's preaching career down the road. What happens that day in that house is not Jesus saying, I don't have time for women. What happens in that house that day is Jesus sees one mother-in-law aged woman with a fever. And he touches her hand and he restores her life. Why? with a goal of getting her into serving. With a goal of getting her into the kingdom work in this world. With a goal of enlivening her to play a part in the coming of His kingdom. And so her redeemed and rescued and restored life is set free, not just so that she can go back to cooking in the kitchen to provide for Peter, but so that she can spend her days serving Jesus. We need to realize how profound this moment is. The New Testament later on looks back on this kind of theme. And celebrates the gospel by saying, Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 28. The same guy, Paul, who wrote that stuff about, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over... You know what, you know what else he says? Here's what else Paul says. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek... There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
He's not abolishing the reality of gender. He's not whitewashing and erasing away the reality of ethnic differences between people. But Jesus is saying that in his family, there are not some who are privileged in status because of their ethnicity. There are not some who are privileged in their status because of their wealth. There are not some who are privileged in their status because of their gender. According to the gospel of Jesus Christ, previewed in the actions of Jesus in Peter's home, we are all one in Christ Jesus our Lord. A profound unity, a profound dignity given to men and women alike. A profound valuing of the gifts of every member of the body. Not just male members of the body, but male and female members of the body. Who are restored by Jesus and set free to serve Him with their days, their weeks, and however many years the Lord may give. You see, Jesus' authority brings this middle-aged woman healing. But more than that, Jesus' authority brings this woman a place on the ministry team, if you will. A place on the team of those advancing the purposes of God's kingdom here in this world. You see, Jesus has the power to heal and Jesus has the power to bring into the middle those who were once viewed as out there insignificant and unimportant on the margins. Here are three portraits that we've seen about Jesus. One, a portrait of Jesus cleansing a leper. One, a portrait of Jesus bringing bringing healing to a Roman household. One, a portrait of Jesus bringing healing for and, and restoration for a woman so that she might begin serving. But then underneath these three portraits, if you think of them as three pictures hung on the wall, there's a caption that Matthew wants to print there for us. Have you ever been to like an art gallery and you see things on the wall and then down at the bottom there's a little kind of plaque kind of thing with some information printed that gives you some context and that helps you understand what these pictures or paintings or portraits are that you're looking at? Matthew gives us three portraits of Jesus and then he gives us a caption so that we might understand what it is that we're seeing. And the caption is found in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew says, you know what's going on in these kinds of healings? Jesus is beginning to fulfill everything that was written about God's servant in Isaiah. And specifically, he goes and grabs a line from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, as some of you may know, there's much more detail that's given further down in Isaiah 53 beyond the line that Matthew quotes from. 
Isaiah 53 speaks not only of Jesus bringing healing or of the servant of the Lord bringing healing for his people. Isaiah 53 goes on to say, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, Isaiah 53, like the, like the gospel of Matthew itself, not only tells us about the authority of the servant of the Lord who came to bring physical restoration. Isaiah 53, like the rest of the gospel, tells us of the servant of the Lord who came to lay down his own life so that we might discover peace. The caption that Jesus puts at the bottom of these portraits tells us that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. In other words, Jesus, who came with authority to heal, also also is the servant of the Lord who will lay down His life. And so, and so say with authority, you may have peace. In full. Not just relief from rashes. Not just relief from suffering. Not just relief from a fever. But he came to bring healing. And he came to bring a restoration that would deliver to us full peace and full peace with God himself. Jesus has the power to heal. And Jesus, who healed many and then laid down his own life, dying in our place, now has all authority to bring near to God all those who by faith will draw near regardless of how far off they once were. What does this mean for us? Certainly, as we read these accounts in Matthew's Gospel, it should do something stirring a kind of hopefulness in our hearts about the Lord's power to heal. And suffering is no fun. And praise God, Jesus still has power today to bring healing to our physical bodies. And I know what it's like to pray and pray and pray for healing and not see an answer to that. And yet still hope that even if I don't see that healing now, I will one day experience that healing in full when he makes all things new. Certainly as we read these Portraits of Jesus, we should walk away with a greater hopefulness about Jesus' authority to heal. 
But just as much, perhaps even more, we should walk away with a greater hopefulness about Jesus' power and authority to bring near those who were once far off. And maybe that just affects the way that we think about other people in this congregation or other people in our community around us. I mean, imagine yourself as one of those who receives Matthew's gospel in the first century. And there are some kind of untouchable kinds of people there in your congregation. Kinds of people that everybody in your society says you probably don't want to get too close with those people. They got skin conditions. And then you hear this stuff about Jesus' heart. To draw near, to touch, to say I will be clean. The churches in the first century, like churches today, wrestled with issues of ethnic divisions that they learned from their cultures. If I'm from this cultural background, then maybe I can find reasons to feel like I'm superior to people from other cultural backgrounds. What does it do if you begin to hear about Jesus' compassion toward a Roman centurion and the servants, the kids in his household? you're a part of a church in the first century and maybe you grew up hearing dad pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman. What does it do when you see Jesus's heart of compassion toward Peter's mother-in-law reaching out his hands, healing her and restoring her so that she can play a part in serving him? Maybe this does something for the way that we view one another right here in this room or the way that we view others around us in our community. But above all else, if we get nothing else from Matthew chapter 8, I think we need to see that Jesus who came with authority to heal, he came with authority to bring near those who were once far off. And listen, That means that if the voices of shame have been telling you this week that you don't belong, you can rebuke those voices of shame in the name of Jesus. And say, I'm not here because I feel like I'm here. I'm here because Jesus said, I will. And he made a way for you to enter the worship of God along with God's people. And you can look right back at the voices of shame that tell you you've got no business being here. You're so culturally different than all of the people who call themselves Christian. You don't belong. These people are from a certain cultural tribe and your cultural tribe is different. You can rebuke those voices of shame and say, no, I'm here because my Lord Jesus Christ promised that people from east, from west, from many different nations and tribes and language groups and cultural backgrounds would all find a seat at the table right alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If you find yourself feeling like I'm just a kid, not very wealthy, I don't have a place, you can draw near to God even today knowing that Jesus brings near even young ones, even children who will draw near to God by faith in Him. And maybe a particular word is in order for women. 
There are cultural pressures today that will continue to that will continue to amplify this problem that has existed since Genesis 3, this tension, this animosity, this distance between male and female, between men and women. And sometimes in that tension that we live in, in this fallen world, that tension isn't according to God's design. It's a product of the fall. But sometimes in this tension that we live in, there will be voices that will say to you, God doesn't really care about you as a woman. God doesn't really have a part for you to play in his kingdom as a woman. And you can go right back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the authority of Jesus who came and found one middle-aged woman and instead of going and spending sermon prep time with Peter in the other room, he made a beeline right over to her and said, be gone to the fever. He reached out and touched her and restored her so that not only Peter, but also his mother-in-law might find a meaningful role in ministry in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, our Lord Jesus Christ has authority to heal and praise his name. He has authority to bring near, to bring into the heart of the family of God those who, like you and I, were once far off. And so the invitation of Matthew chapter 8 is to stand in awe of a Savior like that. To marvel at His great power and authority. And then to draw near by faith in Him and to find our place. To find our place among the worshipers. To find our place at at the table right alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To find our place in serving others for the glory of God. Let's marvel at our Lord and let's draw near to the Father and find our place in his family through faith in Jesus and his authority. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. You know, every week we take the 